This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. This morning, we're going under the sea to have a look at the lucrative abalone export market and the emerging world of seaweed farming. We're very much in that, I think it's called the valley of death in terms of translating research into commercial production. We'll head down underneath the water a little later in the show, but first, Serena Locke is here to run through this week's biggest rural news. Good morning, Serena. Good morning, Clint. Let's first go to the Murray-Darling Basin, where water buybacks are back on the table after a seven-year break introduced by the previous government. State water ministers were meeting this week, and ahead of the meeting, the federal minister announced the government would restart water buybacks for the environment. Yes, so the Murray-Darling Basin was allocated a big sum of money, $13 billion, to deliver water to the environment, paying some irrigators for efficiency schemes, buying back water. Now, water buybacks had been stopped, as you mentioned, by the previous government amid a storm of complaints from farmers that it was ruining agriculture in the productive basin. It's known as our breadbasket. So a huge amount of water is still needed to deliver the original plan. And the Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, says without buying more water back, there was likely to be more catastrophic fish kills. And so she said irrigators were lining up to sell to the government. Irrigators have been approaching us since we came into government, saying that they've got water entitlements that they would like to sell to the Commonwealth to return uh, for environmental flows. What I also know is that there is progressively less water available in the Murray-Darling Basin system because we're facing the impacts of climate change. Well, the minister says farmers have been approaching the federal government as willing water sellers, but the Irrigators Council disagrees. Yeah, so just over 49 gigalitres would be recovered from the Condamine Ballon in Queensland. And in New South Wales, the Murray, the Namoy, Border Rivers, Barwon Darling and Lachlan catchments. And that open tender would start in late March. So, yes, the chairman of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, says he's extremely disappointed by the announcement and says this has restarted the water wars. The people of, of the basin, their incomes, their livelihood, their industries, their communities are at massive risk. And, and it also, it's every person in every city around the, around the country, you know, this means higher food prices, more scarcity of food. You know, in a time when we're hearing consistently out of this government about cost of living pressures and everything else. This is making it worse. So basically, the Water Minister has, despite all the representations from irrigation communities, not to restart the water wars, is absolutely restarting the water wars. It's definitely crunch time for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. All the water has to be delivered by the middle of next year, unless some things change pretty soon. But let's shift gears now, because the New South Wales government thought they had a lid on the honeybee pest Varroa mite, but some illegal movement of hives has dinted that confidence. 
Yeah, so there have been two new detections of the deadly varroa mm. mite on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, which authorities say are linked to the illegal movement of beehives out of the infected hunter area. Now, the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry says the sites at Tari and nearby Werrell Flat are linked to properties in current eradication zones in the hunter. Now, two new red zones have been set up as a result. And of course, I mean, it's really gutted the, uh, um, you know, the beekeeping industry. Steve Fuller represents apiarists. He says the discovery has been a big setback. We had it really under control. It's, uh, it's the last thing we want to see. It's put a spanner in the works in a big way. We didn't need this. We've been doing so well. There's been so much work and effort put into it. It's really sad to see something like this happen. No good, no good, that news. But moving on, the trend towards fake or plant-based meat grew very fast in Australia, and yet one manufacturer is set to close up shop and head overseas. Uh, yes, and it's only just set up two years ago. The Meat Substitute Factory, it cost $20 million to set up in Wodonga on the New South Wales-Victorian border, and it'll close. Now, the company V2 Food was supplying meat-free burgers to supermarkets and also Hungry Jacks. Um, but it says the market is changing and it's focusing its attention on Asia. CEO Tim York says the vegetarian option grew very fast, but there is a lot of competition here in Australia for a very small market. Yeah, so I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of hype in the category. I think it's brought a lot of players into it. Um, some of those players are doing well, some aren't. Um, our business in Australia grew at over 50% in the last year, so we still see the, the category quite positively. But certainly there is going to be a shakeout and consolidation in the number of players in it. Moving on, a new vaccine is being developed to solve a problem that causes cows to become infertile. Yeah, so this is a sexually transmitted disease called bovine trichononosis. It's carried by bulls across northern cattle regions of Australia. Now, it causes infertility in cows and it costs the industry hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The University of Queensland researcher Professor Ayla Tabor from the vaccine development team says one in 10 bulls in northern Australia carry this disease and it could spread to southern Australia. We first obtained some positive samples from a bunch of bulls that were being culled and from that we made a culture collection so we had to clean them up because obviously growing samples from the bull's penis, it's not a pure environment. So we have to purify and make the pure culture of Trichomonas fetus that we could use in the vaccine because the vaccine has to be clean. Yeah, so it's interesting because <laughs> cattle producers are really excited by this vaccine because at the moment the only practice is to cull bulls that test positive. So that's costly as well. I thought the koalas were the only ones spreading STDs around the animal kingdom. Uh, I think mammals uh, have a propensity to mm. do such things. Diseases can be found anywhere. <laughs> well, let's stay with the cattle industry because it's welcoming the appointment of a high-profile leader to its new peak body. Yes, so this is Luke Bowen, and he's got the job as the inaugural chief executive of Cattle Australia. It's the new peak body for the nation's grass-fed cattle industry. Now, he's currently head of agriculture, fisheries and biosecurity for the Northern Territory Government, but he's perhaps best known for his time as CEO of the NT Cattlemen's Association. And you'll remember the role he played guiding mm. through the industry through the live export ban in 2011 to Indonesia. Now, Mr Bowen says grass-fed cattle producers is a significant group with a big responsibility. 
you look at the numbers, uh, 30% of Australia's agricultural production is from the beef industry. Uh, the beef industry, cattle industry, manages about 45% of Australia's land mass. Um, this is our biggest export industry, um, and it's a major player, a major uh, foundation of our agricultural sector. Um, it in, underpins a lot of our economy, but also underpins employment, uh, regional and remote locations. It is well, it's part of the fabric of this nation. We can expect to hear more from Luke Bowen. Indeed. Welcome, Luke. Finally today, Indigenous ranger groups from across northern Australia have travelled to Darwin this week to talk about fire. Yes, the ranger groups are at the forefront of protecting remote parts of the country um, through early season burning, which is a method that can also earn them valuable carbon credits. Now, Azania Malay is one of the first women to become a ranger in her region in the Kimberley for five years ago, now doing everything the male rangers do, and they travel to remote regions, including the islands off the Kimberley. We go out, we put out cameras for mammals, for threatened species, and we do marine work, we pick up rubbish, we do fire, like, you know, we get involved with a lot of things. To get to our country, to our area, we, we can't just jump in a car and drive there. We have to jump in a boat or a plane to, you know, to get there. Yeah, it's very hard. We'll they love a... their work and, and they're, they're saying that it just gives them a valuable opportunity to go back on farm. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, and coming up, we'll hear a little bit more about Indigenous Rangers and fire in the middle of the show. But in the meantime, Serena, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Good to talk to you, Quinn. Hi, I'm Patricia Carvellis. And I'm Frank Kelly. Every week we invite you to join us on The Party Room. Massive for the government, right? The hottest ticket in town in the nation's capital. But there's a big but. You'll hear all the insights and a little bit of gossip on all the big stories in Canberra. Both sides have a lot riding on this. They won't concede it, but in their behaviour is the concession. The Party Room Podcast on the ABC Listen app. This week, we're heading to the top end and visiting Kakadu National Park. It's in the middle of the wet season and the landscape is lush and green, but that's not stopping rangers who are busy carrying out fuel reduction burns with low-intensity fires helping to protect the homes of wildlife. We'll meet a self-taught artist who's using his skills as an arborist, working with chainsaws to carve out unique wooden sculptures, and we'll get an introduction to the newest member of the school community at a high school in central west New South Wales, Bria, the therapy donkey. She does love human interaction. She wants to know what's going on. As we're speaking now, we're giving her a scratch, which is really cute. She's like a big dog. She's, she's soft to touch and she's quite funny. I don't know something about a donkey that makes you laugh. The big ears they have, they're a great animal to have around and, and they've got such character. 
We'll hear how that donkey with character is helping students and staff who've endured tough times in the wake of natural disasters. That's coming up. First today, we're visiting the far south coast of New South Wales, where Indigenous women are gathering for a traditional cultural camp that organisers hope will harness healing powers and improve mental health and wellbeing. Vanessa Milton has this story. As she welcomes saltwater and freshwater women to a special teaching area on Gulaga Mountain, Ewan dancer and songwoman Sharon Mason is realising a long-held dream. I had a dream many years ago to have women's camps like the old people used to, saltwater women and freshwater women. That was my vision. By doing this, we continue our song lines and our stories, and it all gets handed down to the next generation. Minga, Badu, Wangan, Ewan, welcome to Mother Mountain. It's very important that we bring our women here for healing. We do this so we stay connected, mountain to mountain, water to water, fresh water to salt water. Four generations of women and children from across coastal and inland New South Wales came together for the biggest cultural camp in living memory on the far south coast. Welcome to Mystery Bay. It's part of the Durandjan lands that are part of the Ewan Nation. It's a traditional camp and area. That's Sharon's mother, Walbunja elder Auntie Vivian Mason. I was lucky enough to grow up with a lot of the old people that's long gone and we just followed the cultural path, but not so strongly when we had children, but there was always something missing in our life, so we came back to the bush and all the memories and the stories came to life and the places that the old people talked about, we were actually there, so we really connected back to country. See the colours on the rocks. This is all the ochre here. Like when the water comes down over, it'll go like clay. As the ocean pounds the shore, while Bunja woman Ashwini Mason leads a tour to gather ochre from the rocky cliffs. A lot of the mob now are practicing or learning and wanting to go and practice culture. So it's a pretty powerful thing, these women coming from completely different places and being so open. And bring it down. Yeah. Yeah. Back up through that one, yeah. Sitting around the campfire, the women weave lamandra grass and stringy bark and make lifetime connections. Hey, you girl, you women, just remember you're going to have a dance and that, so why you doing deadly weaving? Think about your headpiece or your belt. Weaving, for me, it's kind of my way of storytelling. It's a process that I'm able to give to myself to be able to learn and understand the stuff that I'm actually going through. Sheridan Noble is a proud Bigambul and Gomoroi woman who made the 1,000-kilometre round trip from the Hunter Valley to attend the camp at Mystery Bay. From the past 200 years, our people have been conditioned so much to be hard to be able to survive. We've been born in a world where we've had to survive. And when you think of culture, culture is a way of giving back. That was the biggest gift that we got to have from our people is that gift of sharing. Because we've never ever done it alone. When you think about it, when people go through their traumas or anything that they have in life, 
You can't heal on your own. You need other people to heal. We all had the same troubles in our communities, the same worries that we're concerned about. But our women are still strong. There's a big gap in my life where you didn't hear about women gathering. It was all about rallying and protesting. Now our people were frontline fighters for our land rights and to be recognised as Aboriginal people. Whereas the movement now is like the shift. The shift is happening. We still have culture and we still practice it. The difference that we've personally seen and it makes, and I've personally felt it in what country does for you. To get some people there is the hardest part of all. Some of them like, just don't want to leave the real world. And it's really hard. To, but once you get them there, they're blown away because they're finding something in themselves. Gomeroy woman Shelley O'Leary leads her own cultural camp each year with her partner Ted Fields. On Yuwalaroi country at Naran Lake, the Darawa Walai camp brings hundreds of people to the traditional meeting place each year. The healing power of these gatherings on sites of cultural significance is being documented in a University of New South Wales research project. Dr Ariati Yashadana is the study's lead researcher. The research group is called Goedi Gadada, which means from the freshwater to the saltwater. We applied for a grant under the Medical Research Future Fund scheme and through the National Health and Medical Research Council, specifically for a project looking at how cultural camps impact Aboriginal people's health and well-being. So looking at aspects of like connection to country, revitalisation and practice of languages and practice of traditional culture, so ceremony and other things. The goal is really to produce evidence that supports the running of these kinds of camps. The big question that's coming up is why isn't there more of this? Why isn't this happening like on a regular basis? We need to have this happen on other country, other nation groups. And really the reality of it is that the funding isn't there to support people to do it. It's costly to be able to get all the resources together to support people to come. There's a number of barriers. Access to land is another one. Cultural leaders or cultural knowledge holders might not have access to certain sites where they can take people. And that's a fight that continues, but it's a, it's a bigger fight about land rights, but it's an important one. When all the women are together, it's so amazingly powerful and it brings out spiritual side of everyone here. One of the women this morning commented, you know, I could go back to my community now and stand my ground as a strong Aboriginal woman. They've just got to take that step and get back into country and their culture and what's important to them and share it with their children. Deadly girls. Madness. Being in year 12, there's a lot of obviously stress and anxiety, I guess, sometimes. And like Bria just calms you down and makes you forget about everything and chill out a bit. So yeah, it's been pretty good. Year 12 student Brianna Hanahan is one of dozens of teenagers at a high school in central west New South Wales that are benefiting from a new addition to the school community, a support donkey named Bria. Like you just walk out and she'll be doing her little prance around the yard and you just, just have to stop and smile at her, like it's just what it is I guess, just her. 
Hello, I'm Hamish Cole and I'm visiting West Wyalong High School, more than 450 kilometres west of Sydney, where Bria is already having an impact, helping students cope with stress and anxiety. The school's science and agricultural teacher, Julie Maslin, came up with the idea of introducing a donkey to the school after watching an episode of ABC TV show Landline about a program that trains wild donkeys to work as guardian animals. She said after this region and its residents endured flood and bushfires over the past year, Bria was bringing some relief to students. We had a tough um, summer, um, or tough 12 months lately, um, for you know, floods and bushfires and just hardship in the community. And it's just really nice to um, for, for students of all ages to come out and have a bit of relief, whether it's Year 12 students that just need a bit of a brain break through to kids that just need a general break from the hardships from home and even the classroom and just to be able to come out and, and spend some time, the tactile feeling of, of brushing the donkey, running the hand through its hair and just being around Bria has just been amazing. It's been pretty hard for them to be able to concentrate, to be able to, I guess, be themselves. There's pressures at home from their parents. Just the family life has quite, been quite difficult for them. It's like even teachers, just you know, trying to comfort these kids and, and give them the, the best opportunities and, um, and teaching environment. But having something like um, an animal like Bria has just been making that job a bit easier. It has brought a smile to both the students and the teachers. As we're just experiencing now, she's come over to us, but she does love human interaction. She wants to know what's going on. As we're speaking now, we're giving her a scratch, which is really cute. But she's like a big dog. She's, she's soft to touch and she's quite funny. I don't know something about a donkey that makes you laugh. Um, <laughs> you think of the you know, Shrek movie and, and donkey and the, the big ears they have. They're a, a great animal to have around and they've got such character. I feel like it's such a privilege to have what I'd probably call an unusual animal at the school. To be able to see the, the kids' faces, the enjoyment they get out of being around the donkey and patting it, I feel it's quite a privilege and a great opportunity for us all. Ricky Bishop is the school's student support officer. She says Bria is helping all of the kids with their mental health and studies. She is also just a benefit to all the students, like including our learning hub guys that can, um, so students with special needs and disabilities and things and behaviour issues, we can, they come in here and they just like change a level. They shift a gear, their mannerism, just the way they are. And all of a sudden, before they know it, they're standing there patting or brushing her and she's no issue. She doesn't stress them out. She brings everyone sort of calm. It's really special. It's got a lot of students that do struggle maybe socially with friends or um, home's pretty tough or it's just a nice little breakaway from the usual. This has resulted in more pupils seeking support. Well, she's just a gentle creature that doesn't judge, that doesn't have, um, doesn't really care what your smell look like or what mood you're in because once you get near her, she'll just distract you I guess a good sort of segue into let's talk about something else or let's focus on something else yeah she, I think she's been a bit of a surprise for everyone really at the whole point of a donkey but um, once they get in and meet her then it's like she's awesome like she's just um, like look at her she's just so chill <laughs> she's so chill but she does have her playful moments too so everyone's getting used to her so she does have a little gallop and a couple of times she's done that now she's feeling more comfortable it's like, whoa, but everyone just stands still and she'll, she'll do a little trot around you and then go off, 
have a drink and then come back and ready for another pat sort of thing. Students can come and say, can we have a chat? And I'm just more often than normal at the moment just grabbing my keys saying, let's go out and see Bray. And they're all on board. So, yeah, I get a lot more visitors lately. <laughs> this has meant the kids cannot get enough of the donkey. The students who meet Bria often go home and say, can I have a donkey <laughs> for, a, for a pet? So, yeah, it, it's kicked off quite well. We've got students saying, we need two donkeys. We need three donkeys. We need four donkeys. <laughs> Ricky Bishop, the Student Support Officer at the West Wyalong High School in Central West New South Wales, where Bria the Donkey is helping both students and staff cope with anxiety and stress. She was speaking with reporter Hamish Cole. Before that, Vanessa Milton reported from an Aboriginal cultural camp at Mystery Bay on the New South Wales south coast. You can find more on both of those stories on the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. Look for Country Breakfast under programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Morning. Still to come, we'll meet the arborist getting artistic with his chainsaw and we'll visit Kakadu National Park where rangers and traditional owners have been busy burning country over the past few weeks. Max Rowley caught up with them to find out why. It's a cloudy morning at the southern end of Kakadu National Park and amongst the green wet season growth, rangers are starting to light fires. Ah uh, yes, so this is one of our fire breaks. Uh, that we use to protect the ranger station and we're using wet season burning because this particular area had a lot of hot fires go through it. That's senior ranger and traditional owner Joe Markham. Uh, So it was sparse and the fires weren't continuing through so we've saved the fuel and now we're going to use the wet season burn to to reduce it and protect our assets. Yeah how do you tell from an area whether it's right for wet season burning? Uh, Basically you look for the green and you look for the brown. The brown is the cured grass, so that's actually what you're burning, or what, you, what the fuel is, and that'll, that'll kill the green, which is the grass. So you're kind of looking for the, the old growth, the understory. Yeah, so the old growth, we're lighting that and we're using that to reduce fuel loads. Looking at some of this area at the moment, it's pretty green. Um, uh, I'm surprised that it's burning so well. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, like I say, you just, you're burning that old growth, not the green one, and the green one dies off in the heat. Um, you can see on the opposite side of the road that, that that was lit in the dry season, and there's less of a fuel load. You don't see that brown spear grass in there, whereas on this side you, you do see it, and that's what we're burning today. So if you tried to burn here, for instance, on the other side of the road? It probably wouldn't light now because there's actually nothing. This leaf, bit of leaf litter would light, but you wouldn't, it'd go out as soon as it went into the green stuff because there's no brown stuff. And what's the benefit of, of burning at the moment? Reducing the fuel is the name of the game, but it's also low intensity fires to protect our little animals, um, the possums in there, the bush rat. We've got sugar gliders in these big hollow logs. So with a low intensity fire, we're also um, we're not burning their homes and we're not killing the trees that they live off, you know. So out of the area that we burn early in the dry season, that's about uh, 35% of the park and then about 5% maybe, 4 or 5% might be wet season burning. Anna Pickworth is the fire management officer for Kakadu National Park. It's something that over the years, if you do really good early dry season burning and wet season burning, you can bring in much more diversity into the uh, landscape, much more barriers to fire. And so as we do this more and more each year, 
those kind of percentages might change around a bit. So as the country um, becomes less flammable in general over time, uh, then we may be able to burn less of the park each year. She says wet season burning is about removing speargrass before it seeds. If there's areas of speargrass, particularly that didn't burn the previous year, um, then there's a whole lot of dry old grass there and you can use that old grass to put a fire through the new grass when it's coming up. Um, that then kills the, the new speargrass and so that speargrass doesn't seed and then it just knocks speargrass out of that whole area. So it kind of has the result of reducing a lot of the grass in the country and that can give the country a bit of a break from fire and it can give uh, plants a chance to, to grow up a bit bigger or just to ha have a break from fire and from other things uh, to grow other than speargrass. How effective has it been for kakadu? I think it's a, it's a really effective tool. Um, there's much more perennial grasses in there. There's much more diversity um, in the type of plants that are coming up. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good thing for country. My name is Basic Holman and I'm Wurukwaba clan group. And what are you doing today? Walking with new generation, watching them burning grass, and they got the skill, I got the knowledge. I'm watching them. And you were just speaking in language. What, yeah. what were you saying? Today they burn the grass. I asked the old people, our ancestors, we're cleaning up the grass, keeping nice and clean. And why is it important to, to burn country? Because we've been doing from generation to generation, from our ancestors. We learn from our ancestors and my parents, my mother passed it down to me. I'm passing it down to my granddaughters and grandson. They clean up so new growth can come and people can go hunting, looking for bush food. Just looking at so it's not hot fire. It's going to be cool fire. They do bits and fire break. You know, they got fire break all the time. And we've been doing it this for a long time with the ranger staff and the traditional owner. I do a lot of helicopter fly. I burn from the air and I burn on the ground too. And how is this fire burning today? It's really good and I'm happy. And I like the smell of the smoke. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. In his home workshop in far north Queensland, arborist Michael Watson is using his chainsaw skills in a more artistic way. I've been an arborist for almost 15 years. I haven't done much woodworking, so to speak, but I've just started now carving with the chainsaw, trying to use my skills for something different. I found him when I was looking online, started seeing all these carvings and just thought, yeah, I'd be able to give it a go. Pretty good with the chainsaw. I'm not very good at art, so I was, yeah, a bit reluctant to start, but then sort of slowly coming together. Hello, I'm Amanda Cranston. I'm watching Michael at work with his chainsaw and I'm admiring some of his finished pieces. There's a collection of amazing lifelike faces. They look a little like old men or wizards and their features have been expertly carved into dried out logs. So how does he do it? So at the initial start, you start with a chainsaw, it's called blocking out and you get sort of like the rough facial features done and most of the bulk of the wood cut out 
and then as you finish with that you start working down the tool so I might use a grinder or a die grinder and then slowly down to chisels or maybe a dremel. Each wood has its own characteristics and properties in the sense of some wood like hardwoods will hold their detail so that way you can do more finer carving but there's some softwoods you try to do detail and it'll just rip out and tear and ends up being really hard to work with but I would say I'm liking eucalyptus so the hardwoods it is a bit harder to work with your chainsaw but it's yeah you get a lot better detail in it so I started with faces, especially like the old wood spirits, they call them, because you don't have to get the proportions right. So it's very good for beginners in the sense of you can have a bigger nose or a wavy face. It doesn't have to be perfect. Whereas you want to do more realistic carvings like the animals and the birds and stuff like that, then you have to really know your proportions and get everything exact, otherwise it just looks funny. Chainsaws aren't an easy tool to use. I know you said you use it for work, but how do you find it for doing something more intricate rather than just cutting down trees to use it as a tool for something like this? For me, a, a chainsaw is just kind of like an extended hand, so I mean, I like the idea of it. It's something that not many people can do. It's just something unique and different. Well, I'd love you to come and show me how you do the carving. So we've come around to the back garden where you've got a big block of wood ready. You've made a little bit of carving of the face and this is obviously where the chainsaw work happens. Yeah, so I keep it half in the garden so it adds into the mulch. You're going to be using one of these chainsaws? Yep, so I've got a steel battery chainsaw with just the standard stock bar on it. I try to use a lot of battery saws in my backyard just because of the neighbours. I don't think they would like too much chainsaw blaring the whole time. And I see you've got a permanent marker here. Yeah, I'll do like a rough outline of where I want the eyes and the nose and the moustache. It's not a very detailed drawing, it's literally just a few lines. As I start carving I don't really have any idea of where I'm going besides just the moustache shape and where the eyes are and the nose are and how big I want the nose and the rest, the detail of how the face is just sort of naturally comes. Can I watch you at work? Yeah, that's fine. So what kind of wood is this one that you're carving on? So this is salt mahogany. It's relatively hard wood, native to the area. So you generally would coat this to protect it? Yeah, so once I've sort of finished, then I'll burn it first with a blowtorch. That highlights the features, but when you burn wood, it gives it that extra protection to the outdoor elements. I like to use the natural look of the wood. The burning gives it the highlights and the depth. And then yeah, once you coat it, the oils, like the shadows, will highlight itself. Normally like an outdoor oil, sort of like a decking oil. How long ago did you start this one? Uh, it was probably about a rushed 15 minutes before you got here. <laughs> You've done amazing. And so how much longer will you probably put into this one? Maybe another one or two hours. Yeah. It really depends. The big issue I have sometimes, I'll find rotten spots. Then I get a big hole there and then you have to re-carve it to fit in. Most times probably about another hour or two, depending how much detail. If I want to put really fine hairs in there, then you know that's going to take longer or I could just leave it like that. So this will be just purely done with the chainsaw and the wood burning tool? I'll probably smooth it out a bit with the die grinder and just put some more features in there, yeah. The eyes are the hardest part. I mean, you do everything else really nicely and then you get to the eyes and that's a really hard thing to do to get them perfect. And so I am practicing eyes, slowly and surely. 
Arborist and chainsaw artist Michael Watson. He spoke to reporter Amanda Cranston from his home in far north Queensland. For more on that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, check out the Country Breakfast program page on the RN website. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash rn. Over the past three decades, we've kept a campfire. Started in Alice Springs in 1993 and tended by some of Australia's best journalists. I'm talking about Away. Join artists and former presenters to celebrate how Away has deepened the national conversation. Away, Saturdays at 6pm on ABCRN or hear it now on the ABC Listen app. A national hatchery network is seen as a vital part of the blueprint to grow the seaweed sector to a $100 million industry, employing some 1,200 people. Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance, has told an international symposium in Hobart the key to that expected growth is all states and territories pulling together to push the industry forward. We're very excited about the National Hatchery Network. So one of the things that we identified through the AgriFutures funded work on the the Australian seaweed industry blueprint was that a big barrier to getting started with cultivation is just having access to seed stock and the knowledge of how to grow and reproduce seaweeds. So one of the things that we're looking to do through a National Hatchery Network is provide that knowledge and capability and the clean quality seed stock that can actually help seaweed growers get in the water quicker. And that's a similar model to what's been adopted in the likes of the salmon industry where there's a shared hatchery facility, oyster industry and other industries in aquaculture, that's a similar model. Is it because of the biosecurity risks of moving stock between states? Yep, that plays a role in it. So we need to have um, locally collected seed supply and make sure that those seaweeds are native to those areas in which they're growing. But it's also because there's such a seaweed's a bit complicated in terms of the life history and the reproduction of it. And so, you know, each currently each seaweed company that wants to get in the water has to hire a team of scientists to work that out. What we want to do is take that mystification out of the process and fast track people actually getting in the water and growing by providing that clean quality seed stock. So how soon will some of these startups get their hands on this seaweed stock? Yeah, well, we're about to kick this off in collaboration with the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation and the federal government grant of $8.1 million that's coming to the seaweed industry. So we're expecting that to start in the next couple of months and hopefully within 12 months we'll have something to industry. Um, it's a two-year program. We're focused on asparagopsis species as the first seaweed type that would be in the National Hatchery Network. Um, and so that, that will be in the next year to two that we'll have um, seed stock for asparagopsis and then we'll expand it to other species of seaweeds after that. And this is a long-term plan to try and scale up asparagopsis production in Australia? Mm, Absolutely. Well, the benefits, you know, are obvious. So we've got an Australian discovery of a native seaweed that grows all around Australia called asparagopsis, and it has been proven by the CSIRO and others to reduce methane emissions in livestock by up to 98% when sprinkled in their food. 
this is, you know, with MLA and other um, agricultural producers on a mission to reduce their emissions, you know, quickly over the coming decade, this is going to be a key solution that enables them to do that. But while we grow seaweed, we're also providing ocean health benefits. And so it's a double whammy in terms of being, you know, an opportunity to help protect the, the marine environment, but also to provide a, a climate action product at the end. So once producers, seaweed farmers get their hands on this seed stock and their research as well, what are those regulation barriers that are currently preventing farmers from getting into the industry and making money from it? Yeah, there's a number of barriers then to sort of actually getting um, ocean leases or space in the water to to start to grow this seaweed. It's different in each state. So each state around Australia and the, and the Northern Territory have their own state government uh, aquaculture policies and legislation. And so, you know, we're seeing some of the leaders being Tasmania and South Australia where they've really embraced seaweed. And, and WA has actually recently um, updated their policy as well to move forward with seaweed. Um, but some of the other states are lagging behind. So we're really needing to see seaweed firstly embraced as a part of the aquaculture suite that a state is going to pursue and then appropriate risk adjusted um, policy and regulation to support uh, this new industry that can actually provide net positive benefits. So is there regulation or legislation provided for seaweed within that Fisheries Act? In some states there are. So South Australia, for example, has their own um, seaweed aquaculture legislation, but other states know it's part of a broader aquaculture. It is a type of aquaculture within their legislation. And then you've got places like Victoria, which still doesn't recognise seaweed in the as a type of fishery at all. So um, there's some work to do and the, and the Victorian regulators are starting to work on that. And this is where the, the, the Commonwealth, you feel, might need to play a bigger role in this? Yeah. So we're looking for, you know, and the federal governments, every time they release an aquaculture um, report and part of the national aquaculture strategy that's still in place is around removing red tape and streamlining processes for aquaculture development. So that's, an, and to look at, you know, strategic marine spatial planning that will enable these industries to go ahead. The federal government has very much outlined those things for many years as being part of the agenda, but they are now starting to come to the party with investment in terms of helping seaweed specifically move forward. Who's part of the alliance? Um, we've got a bunch of corporate members who are the biggest seaweed growers around Australia. So that includes the likes of Sea Forest and CH4 Global. We've got Harvest Road in there from WA. We've got Tassal who are looking at growing um, uh, seaweed around their um, prawn farms. Uh, so we've got a number of seaweed companies that are coming together to actually try and collaborate on moving the industry forward. And then we've got a whole bunch of about 45 affiliate members as well. Is there a, a gap in knowledge from what the researchers are putting out to how the industry can apply it? Yeah, so the, we're very much in that, I think it's called the valley of death in terms of translating research into commercial production. Uh, and so that's where we're really relying on, um, you know, research and industry and government to support, you know, and help to de-risk some of that investment to come together to actually make this work. And the National Hatchery Network will be a key part of that. Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance, talking there to Larissa Smith about the blueprint for the seaweed industry to expand to a $100 million sector in Australia. 
Last Sunday, I travelled to Apollo Bay on Victoria's surf coast for a breakout event from the Apollo Bay Seafood Festival. It was a series of conversations about seafood, farming, pest control and the impact of seismic testing on the marine environment. One of those chats I've squirrelled away for a future landline story, but I was very interested in another presentation. Abalone is a wildly popular seafood around the world and Australia is one of the biggest suppliers. While other countries have allowed their wild stocks to be depleted through a lack of regulation, Australia remains as one of the largest wildcatch abalone exporters. Kaz Bataska is the founder and managing director of Cansom Australia, which supplies both farmed and wild-caught abalone to the domestic and international market. Well, it's a, it's a snail, a gastropod, so one shell. It is an Asian delicacy of the highest order. In fact, you'd probably put it in the in no lesser category than caviar would be for, for Europeans. To the Asians, uh, abalone represented the, the highest status symbol there, there was. They, I mentioned uh, that it has a shape similar to their gold ingot, uh, so that's one of the sort of things that uh, identifies it, but it was required at every serious occasion uh, for whoever was in that in that level of society so if you if your daughter was getting married you had to have abalone at her wedding uh, if you had visitors dignitaries or whatever you had to have abalone abalone is the status symbol and the the interesting thing is that australia has, farming has come into its own recently uh, probably in the last 10 years before that australia was the world's largest producer of wild abalone and as a country, we never capitalised on it. We exported everything. Now you imagine if there wasn't farmed abalone available as, as it was, people would come here, the Asians would say, oh, I've got to get some abalone. And uh, we never, we missed that opportunity. I did want to pick up on that. Is abalone something that was previously, you know, either caught or produced in China that our product became a higher value version of? In China, it was produced, yes, and still is. Uh, not just in China, but throughout the, the, the Atlantic coast, Spain, uh, France, they were all abalone producers, but of course they were, that was quite some time ago and the regulations, they were not, not so much in the way of regulations, uh, and so they were fished out to a large extent and uh, so they looked further afield and, and the places where it was obviously non-Asian places, if they're non-Asian, people don't care about it, right? Uh, Mexico was a big producer, um, South Africa was a big producer, Japan uh, was a big producer, but that of course was in Asia. Uh, but things have changed a lot. Japan had the, uh, the huge tsunami, which uh, impacted it enormously. It's, it's a fraction of what it used to be as a fishery. In South Africa, uh, poachers have dominated and they've virtually destroyed the industry. In California and Mexico, overfishing. Uh, have been the, the predominant so factors. So the overseas stocks are heavily uh, he Heavily depleted. depleted, yeah. Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand got hit uh, last year mm. when they had the, that tsunami. And in fact, it was amazing. Or the earthquake. Yeah. And if you could see the abalone uh, after the earthquake, I mean, there's, there's a, a wall above the water loaded with abalone. And they're, and they're all dying, of course. But uh, no, New Zealand's a big producer. Uh, Australia's still probably, no, certainly, the world's largest wild producer. You farm abalone, but they obviously grow wildly. What's the state of the kind of mix of production here? Australia in total in wild probably produces uh, uh, one and a half thousand tonnes, okay? Uh, Victoria about seven, 
uh, through uh, Victorian Central Zone 300. We've got three zones here. So I would say we probably do about one and a half thousand to of two thousand. Uh, no, of wild. Of wild, yeah. Right. So farms catching up. Uh, we're I don't think we're at a thousand tons yet, but we're probably around in, around five hundred tons. Is the farming setup similar to something you might see at, a, at an oyster farm? <sighs> no. Uh, to date, most of the farming in Australia, in fact, all of the farming in Australia is onshore. Yeah. Okay. So they're in big big sheds and they have uh, reefs. China was originally doing uh, onshore, uh, but uh, they found that the energy costs uh, and feed costs were too high and they're, they're moving to offshore. Very similar style to uh, what you described in, in oysters. Australia, will, I guess, will go to that too. From a, an aquaculture point of view, does the, the farming present any kind of, like, I'm thinking about oyster farming and I'm thinking about the perennial problems they have with Pacific oyster mortality syndrome. Uh, are there similar challenges in abalone farming? There are, there are. Uh, we have uh, had uh, virus issues here uh, in the western part of Victoria. Um, those diseases can affect uh, farm stock no differently than they can wild stock. So yeah, they've got their challenges for sure. And you're speaking to a West Australian. I've grown up every year on the news. There's someone who's you know got eleven thousand, twelve thousand dollar fines for catching abalone out of the season. Is it as tightly controlled over here in terms of recreational abalone fishing? That's a, a different challenge. <laughs> okay. uh, I like the Western Australian system. Uh, I like the fact that you have to get a permit to go and you have a particular uh, time when you can go and the season's open and you've got a particular weekend or something like that and you can go and get your fish. At the conversation upstairs, a comment was made, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And the problem that we have is we don't measure recreational catch here in Victoria. Uh, you're allowed you personally don't need to go and get a permit, you don't need to get anything special, uh, you can go catching uh, wild abalone, right? There are limits as to how many you're allowed to catch and so forth, but what does that tell us? It doesn't tell us anywhere near enough. So I, I think it's still a problem, uh, and I think we've got to, to, to understand our resource, but you can't manage it well unless you know what you've got. You referenced the conversation upstairs that's taking part as part of the Apollo Bay Seafood Festival. Yeah. Lots of people coming down to you <clears> know, enjoy the seafood they love, but maybe try something new. Have you been using this as an opportunity to put abalone in front of a pretty receptive audience? Absolutely. Uh, that, that is the, the reason why I'm here. That is the reason why I joined the Apollo Bay Fisherman's Co-op. I'm going to stick my neck out a little here. <laughs> I'm going to say that the other reason is that I think uh, there is a, an imbalance on politi political consideration of resource sharing, okay? Uh, there is a misconception that uh, recreationals should be entitled to what's out there rather than defining, well, hang on, uh, you have this percentage, we'll have that percentage. Mrs. Jones may not like to, to go fishing or doesn't have the equipment to go fishing or the ability. So she'd like to buy local fresh seafood. So here in Victoria in particular, I think we've got a challenge that we have to help the politicians recognise that the community wants better access. And so we need to put a bit of a peg in the ground. We've shut down some of our bay and inlet fisheries uh, for to, I guess, to appease and, and to satisfy the recreational vote, uh, I think we have, to, we have to be a little more practical in terms of community sharing. This is completely anecdotal in its observation, but, you know, 
just as its latest example, the WA banned the commercial catch of um, a certain type of fish down nearly three kilometres of that enormous coastline. And yet when I am in WA and I go into a, a fishmonger, there's lots of wholesalers there that sell to the public. The variety is so much wider than what I tend to see in Victoria, which is a lot of repetition between all of the retailers. And so in a more tightly regulated space, there's you know an increased variety than what I tend to find over here. Well, we've lost a lot of our commercial fishes. Uh, particularly the offshore fishes, the uh, the ocean access license, uh, renew or being able to uh, to trade and sell your your license, your permit to someone else. That's very difficult here in Victoria, and, and this is again why we need to put a peg in the ground, because we'll lose all that expertise. I mean, these guys upstairs, they've been fishing for half a century. They understand. Where are the young people coming from to say, hey, I want to be a fisherman? Because they look at it and they go, well, I don't have a future. Right? That that's. That's the reason for the Apollo Bay Fisherman's Co-op. That's the reason for the festival. And we have to show consumers that it's a great product and, and demonstrate to the politicians that the public want uh, fresh fish. Just to bring it to a close, Kaz, if someone was to dip a toe into the world of abalone and they're a complete novice, what should they be looking for? Uh, I they should not be looking to catch it themselves because they'll, they'll make a disaster of it. It is a really, you've probably had the experience yourself, it can be really difficult. Okay, uh, the better thing to do, and this is starting to happen, uh, the, the fishmongers and uh, other places will, will get more access to, to processed product. You can buy a processed product uh, and uh, you don't have to buy a lot. For example, we sell sliced abalone. Uh, processed, shelf stable, open the pack, have two or three slices, uh, put it away. And so that, that's starting to happen. But the reality is that this is just the beginning of educating the Australian consumer. This is, this is the beginning, and I'm getting a bit too old for this. <laughs> and as you just said, there's not a whole lot of young people coming up through the ranks. No, no. And so what we do is really important. If we don't get the message across, uh, what's going to happen? And we, I, I love eating lobster. Right? I love eating oysters. I want seafood. When I go to the beach, when I go to the coast, one of the first things that I want is a, a good feed of fresh seafood. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. There's at least one other, and that's me. <laughs> there you go. Good. <laughs> Thank you for talking to Country Breakfast. Thanks. Kaz Batanska is the founder and managing director of Cancer Australia. We spoke at the Apollo Bay Seafood Festival's Conversations on the Edge event last Sunday. And on those big abalone fines in WA, up to $10,000, well, the recreation season wraps up this week, so we now enter the fining season. So look out for those stories. I bet a solid amount there'll be one handed out in the next few weeks. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Matthew Sigley for bringing Country Breakfast together this morning and a big ahoy to the rest of the Saturday morning crew here on RN. ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.